Good morning. In today's headlines, a package exploded at Northeastern University in Boston on Tuesday. A second package was found and rendered safe by the bomb squad. Some close races in yesterday's primaries. Find out who the winners are from New Hampshire, Rhode Island and Delaware. Food prices continue to increase at a pace we haven't seen since 1979. This despite reports of inflation beginning to slow down. The Biden administration prepares for a major work stoppage on U.S. railroads. A potential strike could cause severe disruption to the transport of many goods. Good morning. Welcome to NTD. I'm Kevin Hogan. Good morning, and I'm Evelyn Lee. Good to have you this Wednesday morning. It's September 14th today. And yesterday, an ominous package was delivered to Boston's Northeastern University. And when someone opened it, it exploded. Police say the employee who opened it is now being treated, treated for his injured hands. Police were called shortly after 7 p.m. local time. The university asked students who had gathered for an evening journalism class in the Holmes Hall to evacuate the building. A spokesperson for the university says the 45-year-old employee was opening the package when it detonated. Officials described his injuries as minor. Police have not said how the packages were delivered. The police bomb squad, the Boston Fire Department and Boston Emergency Medical Service are all investigating the incident. The FBI is assisting the investigation and a second package was found near the city's Museum of Fine Arts. It was rendered safe by the bomb squad. Evening classes were canceled in six buildings on the campus. And police at other Boston area campuses, including Harvard University and the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, are urging people to be cautious. They ask anyone who finds suspicious packages to report them immediately. Turning now to politics, the last of the primary elections lap, rest, wrapped up last night. Midterms are now just eight weeks away. We first take a look at the races in New Hampshire. NTD's Jeremy Sandberg takes us through the results. The race for New Hampshire's Senate seat was one of the most closely watched in Tuesday's primaries. New Hampshire is a battleground state that analysts believe will play a part in determining control of the 100-seat Senate. Incumbent Democratic Senator Maggie Hassan easily won her party's nomination against her token contenders with close to 95% of the vote. Republicans believe Hassan can be unseated in November's general election. On the GOP side, it was a tight race between Don Bolduck and Chuck Morse. Bolduck is projected to emerge victorious from that close contest. Bolduck is a retired Army Brigadier General. Some Republicans fear he is too conservative for swing voters in the general election. Morse is backed by the national Republican group White Mountain Pack and seen as more of a moderate. Some Democratic groups sponsored primary ads promoting Bolduck, predicting he'd make an easier opponent for Hassan. In the race for governor, Chris Sununu won the Republican Party's nomination for another term. Democrat Tom Sherman ran unopposed. Sununu is heavily favored to beat Sherman. Many national Republicans were disappointed Sununu chose not to run for Senate and instead opt for re-election as they felt he would be able to easily defeat Hassan. In New Hampshire's House primaries, Carolyn Levitt beat Matt Mowers in District 1 on the GOP side. Levitt worked in the Trump White House as Assistant Press Secretary. For Democrats, incumbent Representative Chris Pappas ran unopposed for his party's nomination. Pappas is perceived as one of the most vulnerable House Democrats by Republicans. For District 2, Democrat incumbent Annie Custer ran uncontested. 
She will likely be challenged by Bob Burns in the general election, who is projected to win on the Republican side. Republicans only need to pick up four seats to take control of the 435-seat House. Both of New Hampshire's seats are expected to be competitive in November. Jeremy Sandberg, NTD News. What's really interesting is that Democrat organizations would spend money to promote Republican candidates. Well, yeah, that strategy could backfire for them if those candidates go on to win the general election. And voters also went to the polls in Delaware, but the only race on the ballot was for state auditor. Lydia York won on the Democratic side. She will face Republican Janice Laura in the general election. The primary for Delaware's single house seat was uncontested on both sides. And President Biden and First Lady Jill Biden flew home to Delaware in an unexpected trip yesterday. When asked why, Biden said to vote. And in Rhode Island, incumbent Governor Dan McKee wins the Democratic primary. It was a narrow victory with the second and third contenders close behind him. McKee beat former CBS executive Helena Folks and Secretary of State Nellie Gorbea. Folks saw a late surge in the polls and won a last-minute endorsement from the Boston Globe's editorial board. McKee ran an ad during his campaign featuring a special guest, his 94-year-old mother. In that video, he touts his accomplishments during a game of cards with her, to which she replies, not bad for a governor that lives with his mother. That one stuck. Some of his supporters echoed that line at his victory speech. McKee will face the Republican nominee Ashley Kalis in the general election. Kalis is a business owner and political newcomer. McKee is heavily favored to win in the blue state. Primaries in all states are now wrapped up except in Louisiana, which votes directly on November 8th. Louisiana uses a top two system. All candidates are on the same ballot regardless of their party affiliation. If two candidates, if no candidates gets over 50% of the vote to win outright, the top two finishers advance to a second election in December. In other news, Ken Starr has died at age 76. He was the prosecutor whose investigation led to the impeachment of former U.S. President Bill Clinton in 1998. His family says he passed away yesterday in Houston from surgery complications. And today's Daniel Monahan has the story. It was an affair that captivated the world. A young White House intern and a sitting president, Ken Starr became a household name during the Bill Clinton-Monica Lewinsky scandal. He was the special prosecutor who investigated the sex and perjury case that led to then-President Clinton's impeachment. Clinton was later acquitted in a Senate trial. The investigation produced a book-length official document for Congress. That became a bestseller when commercially sold as the Star Report, offering startling glimpses of sexual trysts mixed with complex legal jargon. The report found Clinton's attempt to cover up the affair offered grounds for impeachment. The scandal did irreparable damage to Clinton's credibility. I did not have sexual relations with that woman, Miss Lewinsky. I never told anybody to lie, not a single time, never. These allegations are false, and I need to go back to work for the American people. Clinton would later admit in taped grand jury testimony that he had engaged in an improper physical relationship with Lewinsky. Starr also looked into fraudulent real estate deals involving a longtime Clinton associate, and he investigated the removal of documents from the office of Deputy White House Counsel Vincent Foster after his suicide in 1993. In 2020, he was recruited to the legal team representing President Donald Trump in the nation's third presidential impeachment trial. 
Starr said that, like war, impeachment is hell, or at least presidential impeachment is hell. Daniel Monahan, NTD News. And we have more from Twitter. A Twitter whistleblower testified before senators on Tuesday. He said that Twitter executives appeared unmoved when they were notified of allegations that a Chinese spy was working for the company. Entity's Jason Perry has this story. What I discovered when I joined Twitter was that this enormously influential company was over a decade behind industry security standards. Peter Zatko, also known as Mudge, is the former head of security at Twitter. He testified that many Twitter employees had unnecessary access to users' personal information. And this kind of vulnerability is not in the abstract. It's not far-fetched to say that employee inside the company could take over the accounts of all of the senators in this room. Senator Chuck Grassley explained that it was more than just Twitter employees with such access. Because of Mudge's disclosures, we've learned that personal data from Twitter users was potentially exposed to foreign intelligence agencies. Senator Mike Lee wanted to know why Twitter hasn't done more to increase data security. I think they would like to, but they're simply unwilling to put the effort in at the cost of other uh, efforts such as driving revenue. Um, I'm reminded of one conversation with an executive when I said, I am confident that we have a foreign agent, and their response was, well, since we already have one, what does it matter if we have more? Let's keep growing the office. NTD received the following reply from Twitter. Twitter's hiring process is independent of any foreign influence, and access to data is managed through background checks and other measures. The Delaware judge overseeing the Elon Musk versus Twitter case ruled last week that Musk can include new evidence related to Zach Goh's allegations in the trial, which is set to start October 17th. Jason Perry, NTD News. And also on Tuesday, Twitter's shareholders voted to approve Musk's deal to buy the company. The deal is worth $44 billion or $54.20 per share, which is much higher than Twitter's current stock price, which is around $41. But whether or not the deal will go through depends on the ongoing lawsuits between Twitter and Musk. Musk pulled out of the deal earlier, saying Twitter wasn't transparent about fake accounts on the platform. Twitter is trying to force him to follow through on the deal. A trial is set for next month in Delaware. Musk has gotten permission to use the whistleblower's claims in his case. And coming up, food prices continue to rocket upwards. This despite reports of inflation slowing down. And the government announces contingency plans in the event of a potential railroad strike. The work stoppage, if it goes ahead, could severely disrupt supply chains and passenger travel. Stay tuned for more in just a minute. Good to have you back. If prices at the grocery store are making you lose your appetite, you're not alone. Food prices have shot up nearly 14% in the past year. That's the biggest increase since 1979. The Bureau of Labor Statistics laid out the new numbers this week, showing almost everything costs more. Chicken prices have risen nearly 17% in the past year, and egg prices are up almost 40% from a year ago. Republicans blame President Biden's $1.9 trillion stimulus package passed last year for much of the increase. Many economists generally agree, 
but they say that supply chain issues, sharp pay increases, and Russia's invasion of Ukraine have also been key factors in the inflation surge. And something that could further move these numbers is a potential railroad strike that's looming. Railroads and unions are trying to reach a deal to avoid the strike, which would affect freight and passenger service. The Biden administration has plans in place to ensure delivery of critical goods. Entities Cost Jimenez has the details. The potential shutdown of U.S. rail systems could come as early as Friday. It could freeze almost 30% of U.S. cargo shipments, stoke inflation, impede supplies of food and fuel, and cause transportation woes. It could also cost the U.S. economy $2 billion per day. We continue uh, to encourage uh, both sides uh, to continue the conversation, the talks uh, at the negotiation table. Uh, we are encouraged that they're doing that in good faith. The affected railroads, including Union Pacific and Norfolk Southern, have until a minute after midnight on Friday to reach deals with three holdout unions. The unions represent about 60,000 workers. Food, energy, automotive and retail groups say a rail shutdown could threaten everything, from global grain supplies to shipments of goods related to Christmas shopping. The White House says the administration is asking truckers and air shippers to assist should rail services cease. Uh, the administration has also been working with relevant agencies to assess what supply chains and commodities are, are most likely to face severe uh, disruptions and available authorities uh, to keep goods moving. So the U.S. energy sector relies on railroads to move coal, crude oil, ethanol and other products. Some U.S. railroads will start halting crop shipments on Thursday, a day ahead of the potential work stoppage, threatening exports and feed deliveries for livestock. Farmers also plan to add fertilizer to fields after the harvest, and shipments of fertilizer are being delayed. The potential shutdown comes just weeks before Midwest farmers would begin applying fertilizer. Costa Menes, NTD News. The Department of Justice has announced the dismantling of a prolific human smuggling operation. The smuggling ring operated in Texas and the southern United States. Now, Piedra and her co-conspirators allegedly coordinated the transportation and harboring of migrants from the U.S.-Mexico border near Laredo, Texas, to Austin, San Antonio, and other points in the interior of the United States. This organization was motivated by personal greed. We remain unwavering in our determination and unflinching in our message. If you commit the crime of human smuggling, and if you manipulate and imperil and take advantage of struggling and fearful, fearful migrants, we are coming for you. There's a lot of talk about victimization and how many. I would, it's fair to say that one is too many. So we always approach this victim-centered, and we go after it no matter if there's one, or 100 or 1,000. The Joint Task Force Alpha operation included the arrest of eight human smugglers. Erminia Serrano Piedra is the alleged leader of the group. She and seven others were arrested in Texas, Louisiana, Mississippi, and Alabama. The indictment alleges the organization used various methods to transport the migrants, like repurposed water tankers, wooden crates, and the back ends of tractor trailers. The indictment also includes the seizing of property and money amounting to over $2 million. At the southern border, unaccompanied children that cross into the U.S. are potentially being placed with unknown adults. That's according to a whistleblower who works with a company transporting the minors. 
He says there is no proper vetting of the adults, and at the moment, they transport between two and 5,000 children every week to sponsors around the country. We wanted to know more about this and the current situation at the border, so I spoke to an expert from the Center for Immigration Studies. Let's take a look. Joining me to discuss this issue is Andrew Arthur. He's a resident fellow in law and policy at the Center for Immigration Studies. Good to have you, Andrew. Thank you so much for having me today. So first of all, I want to start off with some context. You know, how many of those unaccompanied children cross the border every year? And what is the usual procedure for them at the moment? So uh, ever since the beginning of the Biden administration in February of 2021, We've had 251,000 uh, unaccompanied alien children cross the border. This is an astounding number. Uh, to give you some context, between FY17 and FY20 under the Trump administration, mostly under the Trump administration, we had about 198,000 children come in during that four-year period. So this is about 25% higher. Uh, each year of the Biden administration, well, 2021, uh, they set a new record uh, for apprehensions of unaccompanied alien children at the southwest border, almost twice as many as they'd gotten in any prior year. And the numbers are still running high this mm -hmm. year. Interesting. And now there is a whistleblower that came forward that claims instead of family members, these unaccompanied children sometimes end up with unknown adults. Now, I'm just wondering, how does this become the result of an effort you know, to match them up with a vetted sponsor? Very briefly, back in 2002, when DHS was set up, uh, Democrats in Congress pushed to have unaccompanied alien children placed with the Office of Refugee Resettlement at the Department of Health and Human Services. ORR has had that responsibility ever since. They were given more responsibility in 2008. But, you know, over that 20-year period, uh, ORR really hasn't gotten very good at this. Uh, there have been problems in the system. Uh, some administrations want to speed up the release process. Some, like the Trump administration, want to slow it down to ensure that those children are only placed with fit sponsors. So it was taking more than 100 days to release children under the Trump administration. The Biden administration had gotten that down to just over a month, which is why uh, there is a problem. Once they go to ORR, ORR tries to find a sponsor in the United States. Now, often that's the uh, the child's own parent who's here illegally, probably the one that paid the smuggler or a close family member. But if they can't find um, a close family member, then they'll go to extended family or friends of the family, and that's where the problems arise. Hmm. And now... Also, Governor Abbott tweeted that the terrorist watch list has reached a new high, and most of those on the list had encountered Border Patrol agents. And then, of course, we know the city resources are strained and can't handle the influx of migrants. So all in all, you know, how is the administration planning to solve this? Uh, it's a difficult problem. It's actually worse than it sounds. So the number of uh, illegal entrants caught uh, who are on the terrorist watch list uh, this year actually equals uh, the last four years at the southwest border. Um, and those are the uh, ones that we catch. Now, keep in mind, most terrorists don't want to be caught, and most foreign nationals know that they have, uh, you know, connections or are directly involved in terrorism themselves. It's all of those uh, illegal entrants who aren't caught that are really the problem. Very eye-opening insights. Andrew Arthur with the Center for Immigration Studies. Thank you so much.
Thank you for having me. Coming up, the Detroit Auto Show returns for the first time in three years. Find out what's changed for car makers and attendees. And cleanup and damage assessment begins in Southern California after severe weather. Mudslides after heavy rains send boulders across roads, carried away cars and prompted evacuations. We take a look after the break. Welcome back. Cleanup has begun near Los Angeles after recent mudslides caused by heavy rain. Damage assessment was underway Tuesday in the mountain area east of the city. The mudslides sent boulders across roads, carried away cars, and prompted evacuations and shelter-in-place orders. Multiple homes and other structures had varying levels of damage. The mud was so high around one commercial building that it collapsed the roof. A fire department spokesperson says rocks, dead trees, and other debris surged down slopes in Forest Falls, Oak Glen, and Yukaipa. Firefighters went street by street to make sure no one was trapped after the mud flows overwhelmed roads near the community of Forest Falls Monday night. Officials say crews didn't find anyone who needed rescue and no one was reported missing. And in other news, the Detroit Auto Show is returning for the first time since COVID-19. Industry experts are expecting fewer car model unveils and reduced attendance. It's a sign the industry is moving away from in-person fairs in the post-pandemic era. And today's Cost MS reports. The Detroit Auto Show is back. Once one of the most important gatherings of the world's automotive industry, it returns this week after a three-year hiatus. The 2022 show is expected to have fewer new model debuts and journalists, less glitzy displays, and lower attendance than in past years. Getting vehicles prepared for the event and also then sharing the limelight with, with other, other manufacturers, I think might be a, a thing of the past. The coronavirus pandemic is partly to blame, but there are larger forces at play. Continues to evolve. Our industry is very competitive. Um, do I think it's going to be the same as it was before? No, it's a much different format. Car makers have determined that new models can make a bigger splash when unveiled to a digital audience on a day when they don't have to share the publicity. Plus, making a debut at an auto show is expensive. The show hasn't returned to Detroit since 2019. Organizers have decided to move it from the frigid Michigan wintertime to temperate September so automakers can host outdoor displays and activities. The show's media day is set for Wednesday. The public show will run from Saturday through September 25th. Costa Menes, NTD News. Yeah, I remember going to the Chicago Auto Show. There's so much fun. You can go in the cars sometimes. It's really cool. What's your favorite car, Evelyn? Good question. More recently, I'm not so sure, but for the longest time, I really loved uh, Mercedes's G-Wagon. Oh, Mercedes. Okay, that must be the German in you. Could be, could be. <laughs> yeah, well, I like McLarens. And, you know, hopefully this low attendance trend will turn around and we can see more turnout in the future. Who knows? The exhibitors may get creative to attract more people with, like, a test drive or something. Yeah, let's see. But in the meantime, we are turning to our next story that's taking us to the great outdoors, or maybe in this case, I should say great indoors. A bear in New Jersey has taught himself to close the front door. He nudges open using the doorknob. Let's take a look at the video. Where's it open? Close the door, you little stinker. Close the door, sweetie. No, 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 hon. The door. 
Close the door. Close the door. Good boy. All the way, hon. All the way. Good boy. The bear was polite enough to wipe his feet and close the door. The video was filmed by Susan Kehoe, a bear activist fighting against the hunting of bears. There are a lot of little and big bears living in the woods around her New Jersey home, but only one of them does this. With manners like that, he could maybe teach Goldilocks a thing or two. Yeah, this bear visitor is like a right out of a fairy tale. And you know, Evelyn, bears are extraordinarily intelligent. They have a really big brain compared to their body size, and some experts say they're as smart as a three-year-old human. But still, it can be very dangerous, so I would suggest not to do what Kehoe did. Right, yeah, and especially you, Kevin, you had enough of those bear <laughs> visitors. I don't think you want to challenge your luck here. Yeah, good point. All right, that's all for today's program. But before we head out, please do not forget to shoot us an email if you'd like. If you have any thoughts or ideas, that's goodmorning@ntd.com. Thanks for watching. Have a great day. I'm Evelyn Lee. And I'm Kevin Hogan.